Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this evening, and it is sure wonderful, Lord, to gather in your name with the body of Christ. And we just love you, Lord. We love you because you first loved us. And I pray that uh, for those who are discouraged tonight or those who are struggling, maybe some here have uh, left their first love, I pray that tonight it would be like uh, Isaiah 6 where he would see you high and lifted up, Lord, that he would, uh, as he got a glimpse of your glory, may we uh, partake of your glory tonight, Lord. I pray as we get into your word, Lord, that your word would transform us by the renewing of our minds. I pray, Lord, that we would grow tonight, that we would grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I pray that we would be strong in the Lord and the power of your might, Lord. And so we ask all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Can you say hello to a couple people, please, before you sit down? All right. You guys can be seated, please. Okay. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and take them out, please, and turn to the book of Romans. Chapter 13, and if you need a Bible, there are Bibles under some of the seats, but uh, we definitely want to make sure you have a Bible tonight. So the book of Romans, we are getting close to the end of this book, and as we've been traveling through the book, I want to just continue to remind you, and, and by this time, if you've been here from the start, Hopefully you, you have this outline down, and I, I really believe it's really helpful to have this outline to progress through the book and understand really what he's talking about. But ultimately, it's about grace. He's talking about the grace of God. He's talking about the importance of us understanding what God has done for us. And the importance of how to be right with God is through what He has done, not through what we do. It's by grace, not by works. And so He's been emphasizing that. So, how does He emphasize that? Well, He starts talking about sin. Chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 3, verse 20, He talks about sin. He talks about, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And then from chapter 3, verse 21, through chapter 5, he talks about salvation. And I've been encouraging you guys to camp there. Camp. It's summer, so you go camping. So this is the best place to camp in Romans chapter 3, verse 21, all the way through chapter 5. Camp there. Live there. Breathe that air. Then, chapter 6, he goes in and talks about sanctification, which means how we grow as believers in the Lord. And it is the will of God, our sanctification. So if you're a believer, you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you, the work of the Holy Spirit. So what he's going to do is sanctify us. What does that mean? That means he's, the Holy Spirit's going to work to make us more like Christ. Unlike salvation, which is instantaneous, sanctification is a process, a lifelong process, that ends when we stand face to face with Jesus. Sometimes it's painful, the sanctification process. Why? Because... Becoming like Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts to conform us into the image of Christ involves us being separated from our love of self and our love of the world. Sometimes that hurts and the harder we hold on to those two things, the more it's going to hurt. Better to yield and allow the work of the Holy Spirit to do that work with a yielded heart 
that allows the work of the Holy Spirit to do that in our life. And that sanctification is glorious because we grow in our understanding of God, our intimacy with God, our perspective of the things of the world. We enjoy the fruit of the Spirit and the things that God has for us. So even though we may be separated from the things of the world and the things of self, what we get in return is so much better. We get the things of God. So then we go into chapter 9, 10, and 11, which talks about God's sovereignty. What does that mean? That means God's in control. How does Paul do that? He does that by getting us to look at Israel. And he says, hey, look at Israel. Look at how I promise Israel through Abraham all the way back in the book of Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, where Abraham gets a promise from God. And that, that promise was an everlasting covenant. It was a promise of land. It was a promise of the development of a nation just through one guy who didn't have really anything going on and God chose him sovereignly. We went through all that election and choosing and all that. He chose Abraham to be the father of many nations. Really, he was talking about the Jews. He was talking about Israel. So they would be a nation. They would have land. God gave them the promised land. That would be a, a possession that they would possess uh, everlasting covenant for that but ultimately it says that all the nations of the earth will be blessed meaning that through the jews through israel the messiah would come and be a blessing to the world john three sixteen. have you guys ever heard of that for god so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that was a promise that went all the way back to Abraham and in the promise that God gave to Abraham. So when we look at Israel, we say, wow, God's faithful. Look at all the things. If you understand and know a little bit about the history of Israel and how so many times people have tried to wipe them out, take their land, conquer them, all that. And guess what? They're still around and they're still where God had promised that they would be. So as we trans uh, sort of uh, go from that part of sovereignty and transfer that understanding to then the last part of the book is serving, service. So as believers, overwhelmed by the love of God, chapter 12, 13, 14, 15, and 16, talk about serving the Lord. Chapter 12 has a huge beginning statement that tells us that the Apostle Paul has gathered all the gold from the previous chapters. He, he's taken it all and put it all together and says, I beseech you. Remember that from last week? We are being besought, beseeched, being appealed to, that it be only reasonable. The only logical thing to do when one knows what Christ has done for them, and one receives that by faith, then from there it's only reasonable by the mercies of God that we would do something with that. And that would be we would present ourselves to God as a holy living sacrifice. In other words, that we'd surrender our life to Him and say, Lord, based on what Paul just said, I'm in. You're so amazing. You're so good. Paul has just explained to me and just really blew my mind about how good you are. And so here I am reporting for duty. Whatever you want, because you're good, because of your character, because of your condition that you have demonstrated and proven throughout the history of mankind, here I am. I'm yours. And what happens when God does that? He takes our life and starts to work in our life in a way where He proves through our life that His will or His plan is good, perfect, and acceptable. You know what that means? That means 
that you and I, when we present ourselves to God, allow Him to work in our life to demonstrate to the world chapters 1 through 11. Our life then becomes an example of God's goodness. But that's why it's important that we yield or give our life over and allow Him to work in our life so that He can do that. So what does He do? So, so now serving, as we look at these last chapters, and it's about serving, how does He start it off? He, he talks about, really, you can just kind of, kind of sum up serving with this one word, and it's love. God loved us. And our serving is the extension of God's love. So what do Christians do in this world? We walk in God's love and we exhibit God's love in all these different types of relationships. So what does he start off telling us about? He starts off telling us as we serve the Lord that we have spiritual gifts. He starts off saying that for every believer that comes to Him and is filled with the Holy Spirit, that they have spiritual gifts. And as we begin to exercise ourselves in the Lord, those spiritual gifts will be what comes from our life. We can call it fruit. And that spirit, those spiritual gifts then will edify, will build up, particularly the body of Christ, so what that means is the church has to be strong. The church must be strong in the world in order for the church to have an impact. And so how does that happen? It happens by believers exercising their gifts first and foremost within the body of Christ to build up the body of Christ. So when we exercise our gift, there's encouragement, there's blessing. It's all different size and shapes everybody is unique and individual in their own personal spiritual gifts and so when we exercise them it, it just becomes this beautiful thing that god does within a body of christ that becomes an example and a testimony to the world of how good god is so you'll notice in the end of chapter 12 as he's speaking about love exercising our gifts and he goes through a whole uh, list of just um, sort of commandments of things to do. And he ends with this. He says, don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So that really sums up and makes it easy for us as believers to know what we're supposed to do. Because I don't know about you, but I feel a lot like I don't know what to do. So I read this. And I say, well, I know I can do this. I'm not supposed to lash out, strike back, fight back, defend myself. Instead, I'm supposed to overcome evil with good. So I have to be careful because I'm not of this world, because I've been set free, because I find everything in Christ, now I have the power of God not to be reactive, not to fight back in the way that the world does, but instead, now I have the ability to be good even to those who are not good to me. So everything I just said, you will find as you go through the Gospels, you'll track all of those things in the actions and behaviors of Jesus Christ himself. So isn't it interesting that now, as he goes from chapter 12, chapter 13 is, is connected to chapter 13. And remember, they didn't have chapters and verses when this was written. So this is connective, but he says, overcome evil with what? With good. Now watch what he says in verse 1 of chapter 13. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are appointed by God. 
So what is he dealing with here? He's telling us, as citizens of the world, how we're, as Christians, to behave towards government. So right before that, he says, overcome evil with good. Now, politics have been very contentious, especially in the past couple elections. And it's brought about all kinds of confusion about, yeah, we need to fight and we need to get in there. We can't let this happen. Uh, There's a lot of valid concerns that I have, that you have, that we've pointed out over the years. And at the end of the day, as believers, we don't have the liberty to rebel against the government. That's what it says. Now, he says something here that is very interesting that will help us in that regard. He says, there is no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are appointed by God. So this goes into the sovereignty of God then. Meaning, he's not saying all these governments are good. He's not saying our government is good. What he's saying is that he is the king of kings. He's the king over the kings. What he's saying is the World Economic Forum has no authority outside of him. What he's saying is the president of the United States has no authority outside of him. And you can say, and I would say, that sounds so weird. Because we know there is such evil at those levels of government. You can see it. We're experiencing it. We hate it. But God is using it. It says it right there. Whoever's in office, whoever's going to be in office in 2024, some of us may be afraid of, I can't do four more years of whatever. <laughs> I don't know what I'm going to do. Or it's, that's over at that point. But whoever's in next, God's put them there. And if you're going to put all of your eggs, so to speak, in one particular basket, that person is going to let you down. Because a person that would be a person that maybe you and I would like in office probably wouldn't get elected unless it was an act of God. So here, here's really kind of how, how we're looking at this is the Bible doesn't talk about the United States being a world power at the end, in the end times. So what happens? What happens to the United States? It's a good question, and we don't know. The Bible does talk about world powers in the end times, but not the United States, which is unusual because currently the United States is a world power. So I believe, personally, and we don't know for sure, I believe we are very close to the rapture of the church. And the rapture of the church is going to cause the United States of America to be so weakened that we are just going to sort of melt into all this one world government. We're not going to be distinct. We're not going to stand out. I believe it's going to be because of the rapture that takes the church out. But I don't know that for sure. I don't know if it's going to be the rapture or it's just going to be the decline of our country. But what we find in the Old Testament, even with the Jews who were God's chosen people, He allowed evil kings to reign over them, to rule over them. He allowed Nebuchadnezzar to rule over them. And Jeremiah, the prophet, even prophesied to the Israelites to not fight against their captivity. 
to go into captivity. And the false prophets were the ones that would say, no, fight, don't go. When God was saying, no, go, this is part of my plan. So the way you and I deal with politics, number one, we understand that whoever is in place is God put them there. And whoever God has put there in place, there's a reason for that. Could we be under judgment? Is that God often appoints leaders and rulers of countries as an act of judgment? So he'll put somebody in charge over a country and it'll be to, to judge them. He did that with the Jews. So that could be a factor that we're under judgment. And if you look at how nations were judged in the Old Testament, even the children of Israel, you'll find a lot of similarities to nations that were judged, even the children of Israel, because of their rebellion and rejection of God and their sinfulness towards God, that God judged them. So it's possible that God appoints people to lead our country because we're under judgment. Why does God allow judgment? Why does judgment happen? Why did it happen to the Jews in the Old Testament? For the purpose of returning them back to God. So when they were conquered by the Babylonians and Nebuchadnezzar, they were taken away for how long? Seventy years. And then they were brought back. That was to help them overcome their problem with idol worship. And it did. Didn't mean that they continued to follow the Lord like they should, but it was purifying and cleansing. And so that often happens. So God will allow judgment for the purpose of turning a nation and a people to God. But always what's the most important thing is the church, the strength of the church. And sometimes Christians look at and stress the importance of government above the importance of the strength of the church. The church is the purifier. The church is the light. The church is the salt. And when the church becomes worldly, is generally when you see nations fall. If there is a church or a synagogue or the worship of the Jews when that started to get tainted, then you see a fall of the nation. Because what we often look at as material and physical and things like that, ultimately it's really a spiritual issue. And so the church needs to be, be strong. That has to be a priority. As the church is strong, then that affects other things like school boards, like local governments, like universities, like things like that. But, but, but without the church and the, peop- the church being strong, then the external working of a person for power to try to change things is very limited. And that's why we have seen a, a, the decline of the church has paralleled in our country the decline of our nation. So when the church is strong, and that's where our emphasis needs to be, is to build up the church. How does that start? It starts with us. It starts with an individual. It starts with an individual walking individually in the power of God, in the love of God, understanding that no matter how good a government is, what's most important is that someone is saved and that a person hears and knows the gospel and sees that Jesus is the answer to all the world's problems. So Satan will often use politics to get people, even Christians, away from the prerogative of the gospel. So in verse 2 it says, Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. And those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. 
during the time of this writing, the Romans were in charge. The Roman Empire, the Roman government, Caesar was to be worshipped. Nero, Caesar Nero, was in power. And then you have the Herod and the Herod families who gained their power in the area of Judea and Jerusalem and Israel from the Roman Empire. And you might recall how evil Herod was. It He just was threatened by Jesus being born. So he said, let's just kill all the Jewish babies. Let's kill them. So that's the type of authority and dictatorship that they are under. And none of us would be able to to look at our government and say, well, Paul, he he had it a lot easier when he was saying these things. He didn't know what we're going through. We wouldn't be able to say that because... We have it in our country about the best anybody in, the, in world history has ever had it because of the way our country was founded and because of the articles of our founding and especially the constitution that we have that separates us from all other civilizations that have ever been on the earth. We have it as best as you can ever possibly ever have it as a human being in this world. But we all sense we're losing that. We've all experienced the federal government coming against us. And because of the way our country is set up, thank God that the Supreme Court had to tell our president to back off. Now imagine if our country wasn't set up like that. You just have a dictatorship and you have that all over the world going on. So we need to be thankful for what we have, but there's a real concern that we have because we feel it slipping away, don't we? And what we find here is is Paul's saying that the answer is not to be like the zealots of his day who went about secretly as ninja-type people killing Romans. It's had a very minimal effect. What eventually was more powerful than the Roman Empire, it was the spread of the gospel. Because the spread of the gospel changed the whole world and brought down the Roman Empire. And so that's the importance. So in verse 3, he says, For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authorities? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. So it's a general principle. Those who get up in arms and begin to fight personally against the government will end up getting in trouble for that. As believers, is there ever a time? Is this an absolute rule? No, it's not. It's not absolute. In what sense? In Acts chapter five, Paul and the no Peter and the disciples were told to not preach the gospel and teach the word of God. And he said we must obey God rather than man. So Christians are to be good citizens, but if being a good citizen causes us to be a bad Christian, that's where we draw the line. So we obey God, and whenever the government tells us we cannot do that, we cannot worship God, We cannot teach the Bible. We cannot preach the gospel. We can't meet together as a church. When those things happen, we disobey the government because God commands us to do that. And so during those couple years of COVID, we have seen that these churches shut down for long periods of time. We see... The government, the federal government coming down hard on those churches. And yet, we are commanded as a church not to forsake the meeting of one another together, as some are in the habit of doing. 
But even more so as the day approaches. What that means is that as a church, we can't stop meeting as a church. And there are churches around the whole world that are not allowed to meet. Do you think they meet still? They do. They do it underground. So you don't stop meeting. You don't stop reading the Bible. You don't stop sharing the gospel. And in many places in the world, that will cost you your life. It will cost you imprisonment. And we're, we saw, I believe, a test run in our country of what would happen if we did that. We saw, I think that was a test run. And so uh, Calvary Chapel in California, San Jose, California, they came down really hard on them. And they faced millions of dollars of penalties, of payments, because they didn't stop meeting and faced threats of imprisonment and jail time for the pastors and even those who were meeting. And it took a little while, but the federal, or I'm sorry, the Supreme Court came back and told California, stop doing that. You can't do that. That's illegal. So they had to back off. So the state of California. But I just heard, because a good friend of mine, Sam Park, who was a worship leader at that church for over 20 years, he told me now the federal government's now back in on it, and they're trying to get them. So it's not stopping. We saw that with John MacArthur's church, Grace Community Church. We saw L.A. County coming down on them. The bottom line is that's where we draw the line. We don't stop being Christians because the government tells us. We don't stop reading the Word, teaching the Word, meeting together as a church, evangelizing, all the things of the Word. We don't stop doing that because the government tells us. But other things, those are things that we say, okay, well, we want to be a good citizen. Why? Because there's something more important than us just getting our way in a particular situation, and that's the witness of the church, and that's the witness of love towards other people. That's what Paul is getting at. So he says in verse 4, he says, for he is God's minister. He's talking about government. That's uncomfortable, isn't it? He says that the government is God's minister. That's the same word that we have for deacon, servant. But that puts it in perspective, doesn't it? The government works for God. And God can use the government and does use the government in whatever is appropriate, whether it's to bless and flourish, which I believe that our country started to be a blessing and a refuge to people to come to be free and experience the goodness of God in our land. But it can also be used for judgment. But ultimately, governments serve God. And that's important. That's, a, that's what Paul is trying to stress here. He says in verse 4, For He is God's minister to you for good, but if you do evil, be afraid, for He does not bear the sword in vain. For He is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. So what he's saying is that laws and things like that, so just take it in a, just a very small way, just think about traffic laws. Think of there are no traffic laws. None of us would have made it here tonight. You really want to test someone's character, go to a, a four-way stop. You'll find out a lot about people at a four-way stop. But governments, and he's not saying that governments are good. He's not saying that, so we have to be careful. But what he's saying is generally governments provide structure in order for people to be able to live in. And that structure has laws and rules and, of course, you, you can think about how evil communism has been and how many people have been killed through communism, 
how communism has tried to eradicate Christianity and government has tried to become a god through communism. But through all that, we've seen the church rise up and emerge strong and healthy as it's ever been. So don't make a mistake, but what he's saying is that generally governments provide structure for humans to live in, and humans need some sort of structure because, like traffic and driving, if there are no rules, no signs, no traffic laws or any, it would you could imagine what that would be like. Well, that's what it would be like without a government. So he says in verse five, therefore. You must be subject not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. That's interesting. He says, for because of this, you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render, therefore, to all their due... Taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, and honor to whom honor. So as he's talking about government, then he talks about a a thing that often really perturbs us about government, and that's taxes. So he hits on that, and, and what he's saying is, it's not okay to not pay taxes because the government's evil. Jesus was exemplified that, render to Caesar that which is Caesar's. So some Christians could justify not paying taxes because they could say government's evil and they use that money for evil things. But Paul, Paul is saying that that is not a good justification that there's a much bigger picture about that, and that's loving our neighbor. And part of that is being a good citizen. So let's get back to Romans 12.1, where we've presented ourselves to God. What that means is we're able to do the things that are being told to us here because we're God's now. We're in this world, but we're not of this world. And our priority is much bigger than things like taxes and things like governments and things like that because this world is not our home. Now, as, as this gets interesting because as U.S. citizens, we are the government in a sense where we, we live in a place where we are able to vote and put people in power and things like that. So it is responsible and to be a good citizen to promote our views through the government to appoint those to those positions who will fight evil, to participate in the process of what's going on. So that is, I think that, that is a requirement of a believer in the United States. Because our Constitution is set up so that we vote people in power that will honor our inalienable rights. And what the Founding Fathers meant when they said inalienable, they weren't talking about aliens. They were talking about certain rights that come from God. Certain rights that man doesn't give us, they come from God. And one of those rights is the right to assemble as a church. So no man or human being can tell us we can't meet anymore. And that even happened with our state um, governor. They told the churches they, they couldn't meet if they had over a certain number of people. Thankfully, after COVID, they reversed that and actually had a vote that said that Texas cannot intervene whatsoever, no matter what emergency or what have you, in a church gathering together. So that's on the books now, praise the Lord. 
But that, that was an interesting time, wasn't it? It was a test to see how far. But as believers, we know where this is all going and we know how it's going to go. So we know it's all going to a one world government. That's going to happen. It's going to a one world religion, a one world currency. That's the Antichrist is going to rise up and take over. And I believe that's going to be after the rapture of the church. I believe that's what's going to allow that to happen is the church is going to be taken out. The Bible refers to the church as that which restrains the Antichrist. The Antichrist is an individual, a human being, who's going to be empowered by Satan to control the world. And the Bible tells us that we're going to see, it's not just going to be like one way and then all of a sudden another way. It's going to continually, slowly get that way. So, We're being conditioned for that. And many people are easily accepting those things, not understanding what ultimately is going to happen when the Antichrist takes over and the tribulation begins on the earth. So all of that is being set up, even with our country. So the question is, we just don't know what's going to happen with our country. We do know that we're to pray, and we're to be strong in the Lord and the power of His might. We do know that God is faithful and will always keep His, will always be a protector of His. But what's most important is just our relationship with God and that we fulfill our calling before God. And we've talked about that before, how God has a calling for every believer. And what's important especially as we see what's going on, that should do something in our biblically, biblically trained minds. It should tell us Jesus is coming soon. As we look at all the world and all the movements, and I mean, how many of you use cash anymore? How many of you walk into places and says we're cashless? You know, many Bible teachers have been talking about that for years, not knowing how that's actually going to happen, and now we're seeing signs I went to get my car washed yesterday, and it says we're cashless. That should do something to us. That should be like, wow, that's crazy. And this is all part of Matthew chapter 24 and many other verses happening. So we have to have a big picture view. And this is important as the election's coming up. Whoever's elected next, God voted for him. Or her. Whoever's next, God put them there. And we can look at that and say, well, he put them there. And whoever it may be, we can say, oh, we're really close now. (laughs) Or we can say, oh, I guess we have a little longer then. Either way, it's all good, right? So that's how he wants us to look at government. So... Verse 8, now it kind of brings it all together, and he says, Oh, no one, anything, except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. So that's sort of where he lands the plane. He takes all this, talks about government, talks about our gifts, talks about serving And he says, at the end of the day, if you're confused about all of this stuff, if you don't know what to do, here's the bottom line. He says, and he's saying, as Christians, we owe the world this. As Christians, we owe the world the love of God. And that's where you begin to understand and realize, without the Holy Spirit, it is impossible to do that. It is so hard in our own strength to love even our friends all the time, even our, maybe especially our family all the time. Those in a church fellowship all the time. And it's because we're all fallen. 
but we have the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's why he's encouraging us now to the world to love those. And how comfortable have we gotten in ridicule and slander of those in authority in the government? And we know that back as far as I can remember, I'm sure it's probably before that, but starting with Rush Limbaugh, and then, you know, you could share a lot of the views of certain people, but as Christians, we, we don't have the liberty to make fun of and slam and denigrate those in charge. It says we're to honor them, not because they deserve it, but we know that God put them there. So I have to ask myself, Am I praying for these people or do I just like to make fun of them? Do I like to point out how evil and wrong they are? And there's, in a sense, there's nothing wrong with that. But am I praying? Do I pray and desire in the deepest part of my heart the salvation of those who are in leadership? Do I really want them saved? Am I on my knees praying for their salvation? Or do I just use them as target practice? And that goes both ways. We know that. That's become a sport. But as Christians, we don't have the liberty to do that. It doesn't mean we can't point out things that are wrong, things that are evil. But personal attacks and memes and things that people really enjoy that make them feel better on social media, here it says we're to honor those that God puts in authority. And I I know this message goes really against sort of where Christianity has been going the last couple years, and we've gotten so comfortable. To me, ignoring chapter 13 of the book of Romans and just just completely taking that out of our Bible, and, and that just means we have a smaller view of how we're to look at things. And so we should be praying. We should be loving even those who are different political persuasions. We should be loving those who are even aggressively pushing their agendas. And we can push our agendas and have the right to do that in our country too, but not to personally attack people. Salvation is what we're all about. Bringing people into the kingdom of God is what we're all about. And we cannot let worldly governments and institutions and factions take us away from the prerogative that we have to spread the gospel. I mean, if, uh, for example, if you were Joe Biden, how would you view Christians? Would you be encouraged to be a Christian, do you think, if you were him? Just something to think about. Because it seems like a lot of Christians make fun of him and he's going to hell unless he repents that should bother us I mean he will spend eternity in hell and he's very close he'll spend eternity in hell we can't have funny memes and say look how stupid he is and look how dumb he is hey he, he is the evil person but so were all of us before we came to know Jesus Christ We can't lose our heart for the lost. And there have been many before him that are in hell for eternity now. And so that's very important that we never lose sight of that. So he says in verse 8, Owe nothing, no one, anything except to love one another, For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's it. So 
do we love those that are in government positions as we would love ourselves? Verse 10, love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And do this, knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. So that's pretty heavy. Paul's writing that with this sense of urgency, believing that in his time Jesus was going to come back. And so he's writing with the sense of urgency and Jesus didn't come back after he died and rose again during Paul's time and still hasn't come back. But a Christian doctrine of imminency is in play here where God has not told us the day or the hour because he could come at any time. But if Paul said that, in his time, that the time now is nearer than it ever has been, what about now? Matthew 24 tells us about birth pangs and about groanings as a, a woman in labor would feel the contractions getting closer and closer with more intensity and more intensity. And we have to ask ourselves, in the world that we live in now, how far can it go? And we do have examples in the Bible of judgment, don't we? We have an example in the Bible of a worldwide judgment, the flooding of the earth. What was involved there? What was in play there? The final straw was this evil that manifests itself in Weird sexual activity. Worldwide judgment. That's in at the end. I can't, God couldn't do anything with how weird things have gotten. So he says, I'm going to wipe everything out and start over. So worldwide flood it wiped everything out except for eight people on the ark and he started over. There was another example. We have another example. It's pretty well known about judgment. And that was Sodom and Gomorrah. Not a global judgment, a local judgment. What was involved there? Abnormal sexual activity. What happened? That brought on judgment. What do we have now in our world? I don't need to tell you. I don't need to explain it to you. But it's pretty bad. And if it continues... Mankind will implode on itself because it's not sustainable. This is not a sustainable model that we're seeing, especially when it comes to sexuality. So it's just very simple. God created male and female, and the two shall leave their mother and father, become one flesh, and through that union would be a family that family would grow up with the safety and security of the parents and the children would grow up and they would have their families and, and there would be healthy civilization. Families are at the heart of the civilization. What's happening to the families now? Don't need to say. What's happening to the kids now? It's obvious. So how close are we? I don't know, but it's nearer than Paul's time. And it's nearer than yesterday. And by what I can see, and I've been studying these things for quite a while now, sure seems like we're really close. Really close to what? Well, the next event 
on the prophetic calendar is the snatching away of the church. Harpazo is the, the word that we find in, uh, it's a Greek word from a Latin word, rapturo, where we get our word rapture. At any moment, every believer on the face of the earth will be snatched up, caught up, taken up to meet Jesus in the clouds in the air. And by all looks of it, we're very close to that. What happens after that? Well, the church is in heaven with Jesus, hanging out for seven years, enjoying fellowship with Jesus. Seven years. What happens on earth? Seven-year tribulation period on earth. What's that? The worst time in world history that has ever happened to the world. There's nothing even comparable to how bad that time will be. Not World War I, not World War II, not Vietnam, not anything. It'll be the worst thing, not any natural disaster can even compare to anything. So in the book of Revelation, it talks about God pouring out His wrath. And what is the point of all that? Again, is judgment, but also to bring people to repentance. Especially the nation of Israel, which they, during the tribulation time, will realize because they'll start worshiping, worshiping the Antichrist as their Messiah. The Antichrist will turn on them in an event called the abomination of desolation. And then the Jews will flee and run for the hills because they'll be hunted down like animals. But at that time, they will realize that Jesus was their Messiah. The book of Zechariah tells us that they will look on Him in whom they pierced and weep and mourn. So there will be a national repentance of Israel during this seven-year tribulation time, separated by two halves, three and a half years. At the three and a half year mark is the abomination of desolation. At the end of the seven years, Jesus comes back on a white horse with the church to conquer. He conquers the earth, conquers the Antichrist throws them into or ties them up for a temporary time of a thousand years, a millennial kingdom on earth. And then for a thousand years, Satan won't have any opportunity or ability to do anything. It's going to be paradise on earth. And then after that will be the new heaven and new earth. With all that and with what we see here, and the reason I was trying to paint that picture at the end is because as we finish tonight I want us to have a bigger perspective of our life on earth Satan wants us to focus on the little things that are going on in this world and I say little because in comparison to eternity they are little and Paul said another time he said these Present sufferings are not worthy to be compared to the future glory that will be revealed into us or revealed to us. So we have to look at what's going on with the bigger picture. This is not our home. We are not of the world. We are of the kingdom of God and we are here as ambassadors of Christ to lead people into the kingdom of God which is eternal. As citizens of the United States, we exercise our freedoms. We should do that. We should partake in government, should have roles and do those things, and we should fight for what's right. But at the end of the day, we don't respect, we don't dishonor, but we give glory to God and we preach the gospel and try to bring people to Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. And if it meant one person, if your whole life, was used by God to bring one person to salvation, would it be worth it? One person that would not spend eternity in hell? It would be worth it. And so one life, soon to pass, only what's done for Christ will last. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. It's always uh, something that straightens us out and gets, gives us the right perspective. And 
I know, Lord, it's just it's very easy for me, and I'm sure a lot of people here to lose perspective when uh, we get inundated with political things happening so often, and um, our feeds are just filled with with threats and fear, and if this happens, then this is going to happen, and this happens, and Lord, I'm sure all of us are very concerned about what's going on, and so we just want to take this opportunity opportunity now to just surrender all of these things to you and let you be Lord of all. Help us, Lord, to be energized in whatever place you've put us in this world. Help us to be passionate about loving other people in Christ, about sharing and spreading your gospel. Help us not to get caught up in the things of this world in an inappropriate way or a way that takes away from you, Lord. And while we're at it, Lord, we do pray for our president and we do pray for his salvation. And it, it's not funny where he could end up if he doesn't repent. So we pray for him now. We ask that he would give his heart and his soul to you, that he would repent of his sins. Lord, I pray for the church. Build your church. May the church be strong. May it be light. May it be salt. And Lord, may our lives glorify you. We pray this in Jesus' name. All God's people said, Amen. Amen. All right. God bless you guys. Have a great night. And Lord willing, we'll see you on Sunday.